everyone and welcome back to the Social Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and today I'm joined by Tiran. Hi there, Tiran at Vamp the BS on Twitter. Kieran. I am uh, Kieran at Kieran McGurdy on Twitter. And Julia. Hi, I'm Julia at Julia Blanc one on Twitter. And today we're going to be talking about the wilderness years, everyone's fan favourite Labour documentary that focuses on the period of, I would say, the late 70s in the Labour Party through the 80s, right up until the point that new Labour is formally kind of established. It's kind of a, uh, you know, a cult staple in Labour Party circles. But before we dive into the wilderness years and go through episode by episode, we'd be remiss not talking about the fact that we're recording this just hours after Keir Starmer's made his incredibly long speech at conference. So before we kick things off, guys, could I get a kind of a little bit of a snap reaction about how you think, you know, conference overall as a whole went and, you know, how what is Keir Starmer's position like at the minute as conference finally wraps up? I think it's a conference that has been... You can see that um, the leader of the opposition's office and Starmer have had successes. They've got what they've wanted out of the conference and out of the speech itself. Like, I think my issues with the speech are that there isn't there wasn't really kind of like a central prosecuting argument through the whole thing a really obvious dividing line that it kept coming back to of what the difference between labor and the tories is um it did have some it had plenty of dividing lines in there but they weren't memorable they weren't a really easy single argument about what the difference between them and us is you know i mean just to go back to one of the most maligned ones from the 2005 election, forward, not back, you know, obviously that brings to mind the whole Kodos and Kang twirling, twirling ever more towards freedom. Um, but, it, you know, there was still a message in there. There was still a message in there about what the basic difference is. And whilst Starmer had dividing lines of like, all oh, right, you know, I was in public service, I was prosecuting uh, rapists, etc., etc., while Boris Johnson was complaining about wearing bike helmets. Okay, sure, but everyone can see these days that Boris Johnson is doing slightly more important stuff than that. So <laughs> it's it's uh, it's stuff that like does draw a contrast, but it's it's not you know a really key dividing line. It's not stuff like you know they try to divide while we try to unite the country. It's not stuff like these. There are all sorts of lines that Labour has kind of got and that are actually in there. And for example, Starmer's 12,000, 14,000 word pamphlet that he did, but you really have to dig through them to get them out. And actually the essence of good comms is making it really clear what your message is and what the dividing line is. And while there were various kind of contrasts that were drawn throughout the speech, there wasn't kind of that top line there. But I think the speech was a success in that he'll have got the news clips out of it that he wanted for the radio and for the evening news you know he'll he'll have got the uh you know boris isn't a bad man he's a trivial man he'll have got the bit where he's uh, shutting down the hecklers um he'll have got all of that so that's that's kind of a tick and that's kind of a success success for now but actually what you really want to see is your central message kind of really reaffirmed at every step kind of throughout the conference to make it absolutely clear, you know, what Labour is offering and how it's different from the Tories. It, it needs to be simple. It needs to be memorable. It needs to repeat, be repeated at all times. And I think the one thing that really uh, summed this up for me was afterwards on BBC News, they were talking to someone saying, uh, right, you know, if you could condense this speech down to a bumper sticker, just to two words, what would you sum it up as? And it was um, uh, remaking Britain, I think it was. Sorry, I just need to, I just need, yeah, Britain remade, Britain remade. And that's a message. That's a message of like, okay, right, that says what, what the point of view is. What, what's, what's the goal that you're doing? Fine. 
why was that not the slogan of the speech then? You know, was it a better, stronger together, uh, a better, stronger future? Someone, maybe, someone maybe they found it too similar to rebuilding Britain, which was the slogan in in two thousand and eighteen. If you remember for that for that oh, one who, that, that one summer in two thousand and eighteen, yeah. Look, I I'm probably in the top one percent. You know, people who pays most attention to these things, and even I didn't bloody remember that. So, like, you know, they could have got away with that. You know, Corbyn managed to use uh, for the many, not the few. Uh, for, and granted, you know, Corbyn kind of emulating Blair was a bit more. A bit more of a kind of there were there was more incentive for him to do that than there is for Starmer to emulate Corbyn. But um, but there are all sorts of ways that you can do these things. And if that's but that was what the leader of the opposition's message was telling this guy on BBC News was the kind of two word bumper sticker message of Starmer's speech. Cool. Have that as a slogan of your conference then. Have it there and repeated. Don't be putting out loads of different messages and almost kind of uh, making it impossible for people to grab out what the theme of them is. And that was really the story of this speech. And so while he has had a success in getting the news hits they, that he wanted out of it, there wasn't that theme there that gives you that conference that most successful speeches, the most successful speech and most successful conferences had, which I'd say is my main worry and my main issue with that. For me... Um... One of one of the main issues with, I mean, the speech was the speech was fine. Like, I think a lot of people had really low expectations of him, and I'm not really, I don't really know why, because there was no, you know, it was never going to be bad. It was, I think, I predicted last time that it would be very strong on his on his own background, but sort of very agreeable, but ultimately bland on the rest. And I think that bore out, but because that's what he's like in all of his other, you know, uh, operation. But I think sort of more broadly, it's done what it said on the tin in terms of it has satisfied some doubtful MPs. But has it actually does it has it actually changed the people's opinion of him who says he's not up to it? You know, as in be, becoming prime minister? I don't think so. But I think he'll satisfy a lot of people in the party right now just by, you know, uh, having those sound bites against the heckles. I thought it was a great speech for the guy who will succeed Keir Starmer in the leadership. If it makes sense. Like, that was the speech that you want. Treating. So when West Streeting takes over, you know. I should, uh, uh, I should probably add, this is not the official position of the Social Review as an organization. It's my official position. <laughs> <laughs> Electable and delectable. Definitely cut that. Definitely cut that. Do not cut that. Do not cut that. Do not cut that. If West Street isn't being defined as electable and delectable, I swear to God, it will be censorship. Julia, you need to you need to roll the pitch for this first before you start. No, 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 no. But seriously, well, I think I, I thought it was like you you can like sort of see. This is what I'm saying. Like, see, like the bones of what what was being done. Like, it's like okay. Here, here's the comparison. This speech is to New Kinnock's as the first awakens is to a new hope. If it makes sense, it's like beat by beat, an attempt to like reboot the the magic with the cast that is not. It's like it doesn't have quite the same amount of magic, but it has corporate charm. It has a bigger budget and a corporate charm to replace it. So, like for instance, you have the heckler. So you have like the establishment of like the 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 the, the conflict within the Labour Party, where the leader takes on uh, the 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 left and then wins. You have the sort of like lines about, you know, never again will labor be sent into battle to die and stuff like that. Like labor is a patriotic party, blah, blah, blah. So like all of these beats that were like from the Kinnock time that that worked really well, 
for Kinnick, but like with like a more corporate uh, version of that with a bigger budget but less charm so like that's that's what i feel like it's like some that, that speech is being it was done by Keir Starmer, but like it wasn't done in the behalf of Keir Starmer, even though it's like a very personal speech about Keir Starmer. like it was done because someone needs to like clear the mess and i don't know if Keir Starmer knows this i don't know if he's aware that like you know the people directing the show right now do not expect him to like win an election yeah this is kind of like one of the sort of main topics of the sort of the wilderness years conversation of does is is starmer consciously trying to be the kinnock does he see himself as the kinnock or does he think he can be like two in one uh the 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 great two in one radox that uh is the body wash and the shampoo of uh, labor leaders um i can have the great hair and i can have the great body um uh, uh, but of course it lets you down with both you know he is yeah you know keir starmer is the radox two in one uh body wash shampoo of of, of leaders it's like he's trying to do two things at once he's not particularly good at either of them um uh, (laughs) i think this is a a conversation that me and kieran were having like a few weeks ago in that I think at some point Labour does need to be kind of honest with itself when it's like in a relegation scrap in football manager terms, in the idea that you get someone in to do a job to fix internal shit and realise that by fixing internal shit, you kind of load yourself up with all the kind of damage, all the problems that that causes to your brand. That means that you can never therefore be prime minister because the people go, you're just constantly fighting your own party all the time. And of course, no politician wants to be big sam and get you out of the relegation scrap and then never have a go at like pushing on and improving the team because like that's what you got into football for is to to be a football manager is to like be a top team and that's why people go into politics is to you know they want to be high profile politicians they want to be the prime minister so i I think that that's kind of part of the issue is that you're always going to have that tension at the heart of the the kind of you know reformist angle and Labour Party reform with the outward looking side of things because the two are in tension with each other fundamentally. I also just think it was like listening to it and like the length of it is actually important I think when people conference speeches are too long and unwieldy and they are I think you could probably get one done in half an hour to be honest with you but it's also like you could clearly tell judging by the kind of speech management of it is that it was a conference speech done by committee like there were sections you thought Kirstarmer's team have read, have wrote this. Um, Kirstarmer himself has written this, and then there are other sections where you think, like, oh, right, well, we need to actually mention Wales for a bit. And well, probably, you know, there'll be a piece in the social review at some point in the next few days about the stuff about the union, really damaging, by the way, like really tone deaf on the issue, and, and no one's yet picked up on it. But it was all kind of like sectioned off, and like Sarah was saying, like there was no overarching narrative to kind of bind things together. And I just think it was. You know, it was done well. He's he's a fine speaker, not going to set the world on fire, but not dreadful either. Um, but at the same time, it was that that symptomatic of that wider issue of just like Lotto are just, you know, here's an issue we're, we're addressing and here's an issue and here's an issue and here's an issue. And it's just, you know, you need three things, maybe tops, not the entire universe. I think one of the things that kind of are coming away from this is like, I think that the Lotto and, and, and Stan will come out of this, you know, seeing this conference as overall a success for the things they wanted to get out of it. They got the, the, the rule changes through, but I don't think this conference was actually overall strategically um, as much of a success as it could have been. Because actually what's just happened is you've had a whole summer of everything Keir Starmer's always been saying, we need to stop infighting, you know, we need to turn outwards and, and focus on the country. Um, 
And then, then what does he immediately do? He, he plunges kind of the Labour Party into infighting. And actually, if he wanted to have a message of, um, you know, I'm changing the party, which is the one that he's had this week, he would have been much better off actually spending the whole summer saying the party needs to change rather than saying we need to stop infighting. Um, so I'd say, actually, this conference... Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go down this road, if you go, so that you know, there you can go down either road. You can do either. We need unity. We need to stop infighting, or you can do. We need to change the party, and I need to, and I'm going to try to change the party. I'm going to do that. Um, and he's kind of like done both. It's like fine, just pick one, just pick one, and, and and have that as your message. And that's one of the big problems of kind of like the overall unifying comms. And what Julia said just then is like, uh, sorry, I, I actually almost got your point of view. She said, you know, this is a good speech for the leader. After actually, this was a good speech for. I'd say it is a good speech probably for the next leader if he ends up if he ends up losing. But uh, one one other thing is that I'd say that this is a speech that it would have been fine if it was a year ago with his first kind of. Um, Loto with his first uh, leader of the opposition's office staff where you know there weren't particularly many great comms professionals uh, among them you had Ben Nunn who, who was with him and had been with him for a while um, but who plenty of the Labour Party had had plenty of issues with and I think it would have been a lot easier to forgive kind of a, a conference speech that seemed like it was wholly done by committee uh, about a year ago but I think my first thought after this I mean you had Phil Collins uh, Philip Collins who not the famous Phil Collins of the 80s but um, the 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 um, speechwriter who worked on, on some of Blair's conference speeches, uh, who was apparently brought in for this. And immediately I came out of this and I just thought, Jesus Christ, he's losing his touch because he's supposed to be good at kind of making these things and putting the overarching arguments. And actually you looked at it and it, it was as if it hadn't really been done by people at the top of their game in terms of uh, political comms. So either they'd been brought in and they're, you know, they'd been ignored and plenty of other stuff had been added as well, which is a bad sign. Um, but like, yeah, it wasn't a speech that felt like it had been done with much of a kind of great kind of overarching comms focus, even though they got the bits that they wanted out of this. And I think this conference, the, the, the main point is all the stuff like the rule changes, which they can do to kind of, if they're going to go down the road of like, look, we need to change the party so we can, we can face out. Fantastic. Fine. Do that. But, you know, Tony Blair did not spend the whole year saying we need unity, we need unity, we need unity. And then just the weekend before the 1994, 1995 conference go, oh, actually, we need to scrap clause for no, he spent a year making this argument. He no, he did do that. You you miss. He brought clause for twice. He brought it up in nineteen ninety four when he took over, and it failed. And he brought it up again. Yeah, but he spent a year making the argument. No, no, yeah, fair enough. He did. <laughs> but I think this is this is the issue with Starmer is this isn't a, this isn't his project. He has shopped out his project to someone else, as Julia said. So when he, which is fine, but bring them into the room when you're doing your strategy of what your comms well, are it, for the whole summer. <laughs> it makes sense through that prism in the sense that. You know, the Electoral College, he could, he could present it knowing that it would damage his reputation, but the changes on the threshold that would go through would ensure that the uh, left were locked out of any future leadership contest. So I think it's one of these things where I'm not sure he does know, but he's that he lacks that much confidence that he genuinely couldn't, as in couldn't know. He might not know. But the main difficulty is, is like, because of that, the great message that he wants to come out with, the, that he's changed the party, you know, he's lost a whole load of opportunities to really hammer that message in that he's going to. And he's giving contradictory messages. Someone who'd have seen and remembered over the summer that he was saying, you know, the thing that he came out uh, with after the Hartlepool by-election, you know, we need to stop infighting, we need to stop talking about ourselves. What does he immediately do? He starts the war with Angela Rayner. Um, spends the whole summer saying, you know, we need to stop talking about the Labour Party. We need to focus on people's issues. What does he immediately do at the conference? Looks like that's exactly what he's not doing. And so 
because he's not set up the argument properly, you know, he could have just said, you know, I want to get the Labour Party into a state where it stops focusing on itself and we can focus on people's issues. And that would have set the ground so much better for this conference and had it so that it seemed much more justified and people heard, all right, that Keir Starmer, I didn't like Labour last time, but he's changing the party. If he was doing that message kind of consistently, then that would have made this conference much more of a success than it's going to be. And I've got no doubt that they're going to be they're going to be plowing the like, look, he's changed the party uh, so, so they can focus on everyday problems. Because I think it has been strategic in the sense of like there's enough going on right now that they could afford for this to be a bad conference. In two years time, no one's going to remember. All oh, right. Oh, that that conference two years ago, they didn't seem like they were talking about it all the time. They had a bit of infighting if they've managed to successfully kind of pull this off for the next two years and say that they've changed the party. But they could have pulled all of this off much better. And the people who are in the room right now are the people who are supposed to know that, which is what worries me. The only the, the last thing I want to say on it is that, you know, I think I criticise and we all criticise Keir Starmer a lot. But the one thing he's been really good at is tackling anti-Semitism. And the best part of his speech for me was when he welcomed back Louise Elman to the party, which, mm. I don't know, for me, it's one of those things where he's, he's nap, but that's such a great, you know, it, that's the best thing he's done in his leadership is tackling anti-Semitism. And yeah, I, I think the conference, although it was probably, you know, kind of characterised by these, by, you know, the scrapping and like the, the kind of argy-bargy that gets political journalists excited because, as we all know, say it with me, the Labour Party is the main character of British politics. Um, but there were moments of genuine catharsis from afar where you're thinking like, well, a lot of the arguments that were happening at conferences years ago are not happening now because these people have been expelled from the party. And you just think, you know, there, there are problems. There are still a, lit- a litany of problems with the party. Transphobia not being dealt with effectively, not being really addressed by the party beyond platitudes. But, you know, the big bad of the Corbyn years in terms of anti-Semitism is finally being addressed. And I think that was important and good to see for once. Moving on. So we've alluded to the wilderness years a little bit while we've been chatting about conference, because it is not only something that is, you know, what we were going to talk about anyway, but it was it's a kind of documentary that looms large in a lot of people's minds when they think about Labour history. As soon as you begin to talk about Neil Kinnock and, you know, fighting the left and taking on the Labour Party, and you know the, the labor establishment or whatever or you know kind of labor warfare as it were the wilderness years gets brought up and it's it's quite a famous documentary probably you know more famous than it should be in in that regard the four it's split into four episodes it was made by the bbc in the 90s it's available on youtube from a, a lovely channel called thatcherite scott which are all huge stands off here um <laughs> Because what this channel does is it puts little editorial comments at the end of the videos. Uh, like So it's just like the BBC documentary and at the end it's like, bloody Labour, can't govern sort of thing. It's just really funny. It's just the most ludicrous shithousery that's going on and every single one starts with the most ridiculous little cartoon of Margaret it's, Thatcher. It's, it's, like, it's, honestly, there's one which is like the MGM so lion. Like, it's really good. It has to, it has to be seen and to on, be believed. On the, on the quiet, this channel is like one of the best repositories for like archive BBC footage yeah. of the era era like about it's really strange but it's split into four episodes so you've got the first episode which is cast into the wilderness which is after labor gets booted out of government under callahan comrades at war which is kind of the michael foot era and all the scrapping around the deputy leadership contests enter the, the rose, best one which is the best well, okay you know we all have our favorites enter the rose which is when kinnick comes in and starts reforming the party and then finally the pursuit of power which is you know labor post kinnick which is and, the worst one because it's about john smith and tony blair um so guys 
we all rewatched it recently because we've got nothing better to do. Like, what, what, are, you know, on the first episode, cast into into the wilderness. What, what were we thinking on off the back of that? It's like a really. It's like first of all, like it bears saying, like it's just a really good set of documentaries, and it's like it is very much seen through those prisms of like late early 90s stuff where like wow look at these guys they needed to modernize it was a slog but we needed to like like that theme from like enterprise it's been a long road getting from there to here you know you know what i mean like like that suffering like long journey and when you like right now you sort of see the framing of it and you're like well it wasn't quite like that like you just just sort of like have a more delusion, uh, not delusional, what's the, well, delusional because you're in the Labour Party, but a more, more realistic uh, vision of what the Labour Party actually is like, so, like, it's not quite as, like, rose-colored, uh, but, like, those are really good documentaries, and um, it's really interesting, like, the one of the notes that I made is, like, the the characters are all the same, like, if you watch those documentaries now, I would say a good, like, 60% of the cast is either still, like, being talked about now in the Labour Party or their children are, like, Kinnock. So, like, his large adult son is being talked about in the Labour Party. You know what I mean? I don't know. We've had a very Stephen Kinnock-free week, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah, but but he exists and he's there and, like, you have to live with that. Well, that's just politics for you, though, isn't it? It's, a, it's you know, half a hereditary game. <laughs> Plus, there's the yeah. whole, there's the whole uh, leadership uh, office being Kinnick cosplayers, which is the biggest one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was watching through But, like, it. no, I mean, but, like, I... it's, like, so interesting, because, like, there's, like, John Landsman, uh, Jeremy Corbyn shows up looking really young. I think Tony part of Blair. it is a bit that, kind of, 2015, these were the main people who'd been in the game, and they actually just hadn't gone away in the same way that, sort of, like, there was a huge, kind of, brown eye and Blairite retirement. But that's the thing, like... In, 20, in 2010. It, it's crazy when you think but about it. But that's the thing, way. like, like, do you think, that, like, other than Boris Johnson himself, do you think that they did, like, an, uh, like uh, a series of, like, about the Tories' wilderness years... And if you look at the like, 90s, and actually, so what this is one thing that I've seen, that actually, if you look at 1997, 2001, you'd be surprised how often actually some people who are still around come up. Like, John Redwood's still around now. Not uh, many of them become leaders, though. <laughs> Not many of them became leader, but there are, there are a fair amount that are still prominent. But they're also yeah. much more the case with the Tories. Um, but this is the thing. The Tories... Like, the have... exception is Boris Johnson. It's because he's a media person. Yeah, but no, but as in still, you do have other high-profile figures like John Redwood, David Davis. He has gone now, obviously, but only fairly recently. Uh, Theresa May, like who was still big, kind of in the early no- in the early noughties years. However, they have had much more of a kind of revival, just because actually there there has been much more that came in. And actually, I think if you if you had had kind of a radical left regeneration uh, after Corn, which you didn't have, obviously because of the Blair years. So actually, it was really just the ones that ha- hung around and stayed through that actually you might have have had a bit more renewal by now in that respect um but i mean the main thing that i was kind of thinking when i was seeing it is that actually you can really see i i, I was watching it and just feeling the mental hygiene that stops me from just being this uh, you know that, that just uh stops me uh that i have spent years kind of building into place of like not being the sort of person who does impersonations of fucking neil kinnock uh, speeches uh when they get when they when they've had four glasses of wine or, or things like that i was just feeling that kind of 
start to be drained away by how active you can feel the documentaries have been set up to kind of really uh, give this vision of what it was like in the 80s. You know, you've got these people giving barnstorming speeches, uh, uh, talking about trots that have invaded the party. And like, you can see why people uh, on the Labour right get seduced by this stuff. I mean, I just look down on them for, you know, making a documentary of their personality, that, that obviously, but you can see how obviously the kind of narrative has been set through it. And actually how eerily eerie it is that you can see that the wilderness years has probably been one of the most influential bits of television in terms of the in- internal uh, narrative of the Labour Party. And you can see that now kind of with Loto in that you almost see the wilderness years cosplay happening kind of even with this conference. And I actually kind of really had to keep a critical mind through it and think, well, what are the bits that this is missing out? What are the bits here that are just a bit too easy? And there is the bit that, as people have mentioned, you know, it really does set out a view that the Labour Party is the main character of British politics. Um, but also kind of the other thing is, is like, you know, you can actually explain quite a lot of it without necessarily looking at the Labour Party. When you look across the world, most governments tend to get re-elected. Most governments tend to get re-elected kind of a second time around as well. Um, you know, the, there is the old maxim, which could immediately, if a lot more people just took it a bit more seriously, uh, get rid of so much discourse. But obviously, you know, people want to buy newspapers. So obviously that's never going to happen. That There aren't the incentives there. But if you just remember, oppositions don't win elections. Governments tend to lose them. Actually, a lot of shit has to go wrong. And it's really easy for, in some respects for governments to revive themselves and to renew themselves when they're in charge of things and they can do new things to uh, to try and win support again actually that explains quite a lot of of election losses and obviously that isn't to take away from how devastating things like the SDP alliance were in terms of taking away from Labour's base but even without those it's not that easy to see how Labour would have been able to win in 83, 87 when there was a you know when there was economic growth there are a series of rules to politics that actually generally oh if growth is above a certain amount yeah that probably means the government's going to get elected that you can explain that that you can explain those with now, obviously, you know, this is more, or more interesting when it comes to stuff like 1992. But actually, I was looking at that and kind of thinking this is really portraying a certain, uh, a certain, I suppose, conception of politics, which actually it's kind of not necessarily that simple and not necessarily that easy. And I think a lot of well, the most... It bore out at the time, to be fair. <laughs> it bore out at the time. I mean, the, well, that's the thing. I was going to say the most, uh, the most instructive parts were to do with 1992. Um, and actually, even then, like, I mean, for a lot of the documentary, I mean, look how much time it spends talking about the fucking Sheffield Arena rally. And obviously that's because it has loads of great pictures for a documentary. But it spends so much time on that and things like the War of Jennifer's Ear or whatever it was called, which granted it's a bit of a comms fuck up. And I think that was the three days of bad news at the time. And if you look at how much time the documentary spends on those versus things like the Shadow Budget, which are probably far more far more influential you can or um you know or things like Kinnock kind of chanting we're all right I was kind of like thought I just thought this is like kind of a story of the 2015 election which focused loads on uh you know of the Ed Miliband's bacon sandwich or David Cameron rolling up his sleeves and saying you know I feel really pumped up kind of it just felt a bit facile until you actually get uh, Gerald Kaufman, who I think is one of the people who comes out of it as one of the most perceptive and says, actually, you know, it was nothing to do with a lot of this. It was maybe, you know, a bit to do with the shadow budget. But you had things like these billboards uh, saying you can't trust Labour, which really kind of pivots on how much 
you know, and this is one area where the documentary was kind of useful, actually how bad Labour's brand had got kind of over the 80s. And this is one thing that it's kind of got control of. And where I think these sorts of documentaries are useful, because, uh, uh, you know, I was talking with Kieran about, you know, the kinds of what ifs that came out of it, is that these do- these sorts of alternate histories aren't really useful in a kind of like, oh, think what might have been, but are actually more useful as a sort of future instruction like what do you do if you are someone in Dennis Healy's position you don't say well you've got nowhere else to go what do you do if you're in someone who's in David Miliband's position you don't be so rude and aloof that you have it so that Jim Murphy calls up MPs on your behalf that way you maybe won't lose two MPs which is all you need to beat your brother they're really important as learning lessons for the future and actually with that kind of with the wilderness years i was looking at this thinking it's so easy to take the wrong lessons out of this and actually the biggest lessons to take out of it is just don't trash your brand so much that people that the tories can just put up billboards going hmm can you really trust these guys can you really trust these guys and still win an election in the middle of a recession and actually the thing it got me to thinking of is what are the kinds of attacks the tories will do you know what is the the tory attack billboard that feels obvious as the thing that they can kind of pivot off at the next election. I think that was one left thing that came out of this that I was left thinking, this is a useful thing you can take away from the wilderness years. There yep. is like a line in the wilderness years that says, policy was often damaging, but, but never clear. And that like, like fully, when they say that, like I could feel my face like becoming the Joker, you know? <laughs> like, like I was just like, oh, so it's been the same thing because it's the same thing as it happened with Corbyn. And I would say it's, the, it's similar things that happened with Miliband. And it's definitely the same thing that's happening with Starmer right now. Policy is often damaged, but it's never clear. Um, sorry, to go back to one sec, something that Tyrion said about, you know, about it presenting Labour as the protagonist of politics. I think it's important to contextualise the documentary because pre-1979, Labour and the Labour movement specifically were the protagonists of politics. If the TUC had more meetings with the Chancellor pre-1980 than they than they did in pretty much every year post, you know, like now I think they get like two meetings a year <laughs> and before they used to, they would meet on a on a weekly basis. And whoops, you know, this, my la- this, whoops, my Labour movement died. This was a party that contained both Jeremy Corbyn and Kilroy. you know so I think this is the thing to sort of remember and this is why the sort of blueprint mindset of many people with these documentaries does wind me up quite a lot because you know if you just kick the left now you are kicking a dead horse you know it is it is long gone it's not going to win you any it's not really going to win you any votes you know you can you can do it obviously if they're in control of the party you know and and you as a Labour right winger want to be in control yeah of course but if you're in control of the party, if you want to have a if you want to have a say in the party's future, you have to lead it forward. You can't just lead it backwards. I think like going on the point of kind of kicking the left and and, and drawing lessons from these things is because um Tyrion, Tyrion was completely right when he said that it's really easy to draw just incredibly bizarre lessons out of these. And you only have to go to like one Labour student social when you're an undergrad and you'll bump into these people. You, like you say, we'll get a couple of drinks in them and verbatim we'll just start reeling off, you know, the Labour Council speech. And you just you kind of like look at them like, why are you doing this? Is this like a, a bit for you? So, oh, no, I, I learned it by heart and I do the really bad Welsh accent as well. And it's just like, 
it, it like it's really bizarre the relationship that some people have with this kind of period of labor history and this documentary has definitely got something to do with it because you people draw these kind of lessons and the iconography of it um and the kind of vibes of it from that and i think a lot of people you know if you look at look at what's happened this labor conference is is kind of you know not necessarily people have been like holed away for 18 months and they've just been watching the these tapes on a loop but they've certainly thought like well we've just come off a you know a dreadful election defeat where the left were in charge we we you know the if statement runs out if labor left in charge and lost election must therefore kick left of labor party straight afterwards to win next election and you just think like the material strength of the left of labor party right now is just is nothing compared to what it was in the like 80s and it, it didn't, didn't you know command as much authority like you haven't got like you know militant run labor councils at the minute causing problems across the country or you know perceived problems shall we say across the country um and it, it's just like really bizarre that like labor to win types are like yeah we have to bring back the electoral college or the party's finished and you just think like you've just been watching this documentary haven't you like it's 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 bizarre yeah. Can I just make one really quick point? So one, the most striking element of the whole documentary for me was that, and the just swimming. compared to today, the well, not the, the, the swimming trade unionist was quite striking, yes. I but, no, as in sort of the most overarching thing was in the documentary, no one who was on the Labour right was ashamed to say they were on the Labour right. No one would, they wouldn't use euphemisms like, oh, I was on, I'm on the mainstream of the party. I'm a moderate. I'm a moderate. They would be like, no, I'm on the Labour right. This is what I want from the party. This is it. And, you know, apart from Luke Akehurst, I think there is literally no one you could say that of on the current uh, right of the party. And it's frustrating because, you know, we don't like Luke Akehurst. We don't agree with him. I, I, I think the Vietnam War was a bad idea. But he's honest about these things, you know? And that that's nice. It's nice when people are honest about their political objectives. But it also means that they can actually kind of make their arguments a lot better. So, you know, Dennis Healy is not someone who tried to kind of shuffle through sort of in the way that things have been done now, where it's sort of not really been said and then everything kind of gets shoved through a week before conference. He's someone who spent a year telling everyone he was wrong and granted it didn't, it meant he couldn't be leader. So actually maybe that's an instructive difference there. But ultimately, he's someone who managed to win the fight that he was having. Um, and I suppose the difference is now that he was having it up against a much kind of a much more materially powerful kind of opposition than than they are now at the moment. But um, you know, I, I was watching this the, the uh, speech there. I was thinking, you know what, a lot of this is really forgettable and, and not memorable. But the sad bit that I could feel immediately was happening is like there are going to be people, there are going to be nerdy twenty year olds doing impressions of shouting slogans or changing lives conference for the next twenty don't, years. Don't say that. <laughs> don't don't I, say I, that. I will, I will no, rather it's going to happen. Boring. It's going to happen. It's 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 almost it's, it was oh, sent into the God. world. I the would rather there it. was no Labour Party than this happening. What I did sort of think from it was so you can sort of see in terms of Ben and I would say John Goldie. These are two sort of models for the modern left and modern right. And I just sort of think that these are the two worst models you could think of for, you know, how to do politics in, you know, you got Ben on one side who is, you know, quite disingenuous about pretty much everything and Golding on the other who is like the way to do politics is to be a total bastard and you will win. You know, um, it, it, and- it is shocking how unpleasant, like from from the outset, everyone comes out as extremely unpleasant. You know what I mean? Yeah. And well, I was just I, I thought, you know, 
would um, would a, would a modern left who say looked up to Michael Foot more than Tony Benn be a healthier left? But well, he... no, the, well, no, because they, I mean, I think I came out of it, and the person who I respected the least, well, I mean, I respected Foot in some ways, you know, like you know what he, he was at least open of like you know I've got my spot, I'm going to use it to make the argument that I've wanted to make. Fair enough. You do you, but also the you know oh I don't believe in opinion polling oh I don't believe in packaging up uh, no 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 but that that was a labour movement thing at the time that was, oh yeah no know. it was a labour you know this is one thing that you know Deborah Mattinson's and and uh, um David Gould, was it the unfinished Philip, revolution Philip Gold Philip Gold Philip Gold Philip Gold spent ages having to have the argument of like no you need to package this up so it's um accessible in a way that uh that that you know voters kind of the way they consume politics that's kind fair. of the buried lead of the documentary by the way is that it gets a lot of focus on like like you say about like the major set piece events but like the story of like the labor party post michael foot is like obviously leaders are important and like mps ostensibly are important but it's like the fact that like mandelson walked in first day of the job and like the labor party was just a tip it was a wreck it had no ability to be a kind of modern political party and that's not like a left or right thing that's like a do we have the actual capacity to be able to function as an opposition? And the story of, I think, you know, what this documentary misses is the work of people like Philip Gold. And, you know, The Unfinished Revolution is a, a really good book. I recommend people read it, whatever wing you party on it, because it's just an interesting like section of time. But it's also just the fact like, you know, the party in essence had to be built up from the ground up. Its capacity to be able to function had to be built built up from the ground up. And this documentary almost completely mixed it misses that philip gold's in it for all of 30 seconds and oh. mandelson's kind of funny for it basically i will say mandelson in the documentary if you see he doesn't he, he just refuses to answer questions at sometimes so i don't think you can blame the documentary maker for that like if you watch um he's, he's he made a documentary michael cockerell this is the, the director he made a really good documentary called inside the commons and inside the Lords. And it was just, you know, very sort of standard BBC stuff, but it was very much like, here's what the Lords do, here's what the Commons do, blah, 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 blah. But there were like, you know, the incredibly revealing moments when they showed the Lords who turn up to, you know, clock on and then uh, shoot off with a 300 quid. So I think it's one, he's a very, and if you watch his Dennis Healy, he does a, he did a really good documentary on Dennis Healy and a really good documentary on Michael Foote. And so I wouldn't, I, it's one of those I would say, that with that, he, I think he worked with what he could, which is what it was, was a top-down view of the Labour Party. You know, you're not going to get um, a, a sort of bottom-up one from that far out. Because what, what I thought was interesting was in um, in 2026, Labour will be as far away from government as they were at the time the Wilderness Years aired. And I thought what was really funny is by that time, these videos will probably so degrade it on YouTube that they, they'll be unwatchable. Is that how data what? works? <laughs> <laughs> like one of the things they are I thought pretty was degraded at right now. Like, oh, they yeah, are, but I think they were. I think they were upgraded th- at that level of terrible. Oh, okay. I'm I thought sure they'd gotten worse over time. No, it's not like a you. You thought you thought like, it was like, like being decayed, like. <laughs> No, that's just the video videos. They do, they do get worse over time. No, look at look at the 2006 like videos that got uploaded when YouTube was first uploaded. Like the first video that was uploaded for Fergie Fergalicious in 2006 is like you know there are four pixels in the entire thing. Yeah. Like that's just that was just 2012, baby. Like that's how bad everything was. Well, also. It would have been recorded on a VHS from Thatchwright Scott's reliable old uh, TiVo or video recorder at the time, and obviously he'll have done the uh, he'll have done he'll have done the uh, little Thatcher videos in paint or, or whatever, kind of imposing those over the top. But it would have been I think it started out that bad. Um, but the thing that I was kind of thinking is, um, you know, part of actually part of the lesson is is that Kinnock, you know, spent 
four years of like, right, why don't we get rid of a few of these policies, but also just try doing it with effective comms. And then it was like, right, why don't we get rid of a few more policies and try doing it with, with still with effective comms. And the lesson was is that 87, you can do not particularly effective kind of uh, policies for where the country was at um, with better comms and it will get you further. Um, but, you know, the lesson was is like, all it did was it just impressed a lot of journalists and it only won the Labour Party kind of another 20 seats. Um, and obviously the Labour Party did make a lot of progress in 1992, but not quite enough to get the Tories out of government. Although... One, you know, one of my hobby horses that I always bang on about now is that actually if the Tories lose as many seats as, the, as they lost in 1992 at the next election, that would uh, get rid of their majority instantly. It would leave them on 325 seats. Um, and actually, one thing that I was thinking with comparison to today uh, was actually one of Keir Starmer's missions was to um, one, of, one of his kind of lower, obviously, anti-Semitism was his main priority. But one of his main missions when he took over as leader of the Labour Party was that he was going to kind of improve the... Um, uh, capacity and professional and professionalization of, of the of the lay party get back some institutional memory and actually that's one of the things that he's not been particularly good at and actually at first when he first came in the the uh, it looked like what he wanted to do was like right let's do 2017 with a more reassuring face and 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 uh i suppose bet in in inverted commas better commas you know better stuff kind of backing it up and not necessarily trying to sabotage it from the inside during or just focusing on getting their favoured MPs elected kind of for, for for much of the time, which is what, you know, obviously there was a kind of a bit of a house divided in Labour HQ for the 2017 uh, election. But what I was kind of left thinking is actually the 2017 election, we're sort of at a position right now where the 2017 election was done with far better comms than the Labour Party is really kind of doing at the moment. Actually, we've stepped down, uh, you know, from having kind of, people who know that you've got what you've got to do is you've got to repeat your message, you've got to have it simple and memorable. And and it looks like there are other ways they're going to try and make up for that. You know, at the moment, I wouldn't really trust Keir Starmer as far as I could throw him because he seems so so willing to just kind of just... I, I'm finding myself in a position where I can't really read the runes on him anymore. It used to be that actually if a shadow cabinet minister said something, message discipline was kind of strong enough that you could trust actually what's the case is that this has been pre-agreed this is this is something that they've hashed out and i don't know if it's that keir starmer you know it, you know so there was this controversy recently ed Miliband went out recommitted the party to renationalizing the utilities and there were kind of grumbles about it like there were some uh journalists who i spoke to behind the scenes uh who are quite connected who say uh oh well what people in the shadow cabinet can't really tell is if they're pissed off that Ed Miliband's stolen his announcement or if they're pissed off because he's coloured outside the lines. And obviously now it looks like uh, he's coloured outside the lines because Keir Starmer has said that he wouldn't nationalise the the big six. Um, and obviously there's been a bit of a kerfuffle because obviously one of the commitments that he made was is that he was committed to the nationalisation of, of utilities. Now, there are other ways that you can go about having nationalised energy. You know, you can have a, uh, you can buy up, I think it's uh, Ofgem or uh, the national grid. Um, you can nationalise the national grid and regulate the big six out of its existence. Because let's be honest, the British government is not going to buy EDF off the French government. You know, that's not how we're going to go about it. So there are ways that you can have it nationalised without nationalising the big six. But this is the thing, because Starmer is slippery enough at the moment that he, 
appears willing to just go back on lines that he was hammering out kind of for six months in a row, kind of with absolutely no regard. I don't particularly feel willing to go out there and make the argument lest he makes me look like an idiot kind of this time in six months. So we're actually at a bit of a kind of interregnant point where I don't really have any confidence or an idea that he definitely wants to go into the next election with something like 2017. I presume so. But also at this point, I don't know if he's lost his confidence enough, if he's sat down and watched the wilderness years four weeks ago and has completely changed his mind. Sorry, this is one thing I was talking about with Kieran at the moment. I'm just seeing on camera. You stole my line. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I will credit him. It really does seem like. He went into self-isolation at some point, watched the wilderness years and thought, hey, this seems like a good ideology I can pick up. I'm, you know, people say I've been lacking politics. I'll have the politics of the wilderness years. And that's sort of what he's done. But it's as you say, like the problem with his team is they can't package and present him like a foaming glass of Guinness. Do you know what I mean? Like they can't do it. So he can't even do medium over over message because they can't get the medium right. Well, I suppose he is. That's one. That is one argument that's come out of actually today's thing. You know, they're they're, they're drawing. They're looking to draw maybe a medium contrast with Boris Johnson of like, you know, here's a joker who's just a one trick pony. This is a serious man, and obviously, what you yes, you can do that, but you need Keir Starmer to not be making any mistakes for the next. And two maybe years don't talk of... about robots for forty minutes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Jesus Christ, you know, you've been lest you remind them that people have been thinking of robots for 18 months now every time they look at Keir Starmer. <laughs> this, this is the one thing that actually missed out from the wilderness years is that during the speech that Kinnock made um, on, you know, getting rid of militant, you know, a Labour council, a Labour council, 30 minutes before that, and the what Keir has access to, the tapes he has access to, is just Neil Kinnock talking at length about computers and uh, being really enthusiastic about computers. So he, he's he's gone deeper than the wilderness years actually because he knows you've got to be you've got to be in there with robots to be able. Well, to be fair, that's a Harold Wilson thing, you know. That goes back to white heat of technology. I mean, it's just like it, I think it's just so paint by numbers, isn't it? Yeah, it's just the like thing yeah. Is, <laughs> the thing is, like Harold Wilson and more so like... Blair. Blair was really keen on technology. He has this like, like burning faith that technology will save us. And it's the only thing he talks about at the moment. No, no, no. But it's sort of what they were gesturing to. I think that's probably the Philip Collins thing in the speech is the technology bit. But Starmer's just not interested in it. He couldn't give a toss. Do you know what I mean? No, I I, I actually like, can I just say it? What I think it was, and I think this is where he shows that like the speech was so overstuffed. It was supposed to be like, the connection between the speech was like, I'm here, I'm cute, cure, get used to it, right? So, I like, like I'm here, I'm cute, get used to it, which would be a, I mean, that was the Blair approach really for the wilderness, yes. But, like, <laughs> by the way, can we talk about who was looking most like an absolute snack? Peter Mandelson in the 80s was a style icon for me when I first grew my mustache, you know, if you, if you like, can't like, handle me, Peter Mandelson. <laughs> Look, Peter, there was like that, that sequence with like Peter Tatchell. He looked so cute. Like, oh, Peter Tatchell was, you know, that, that was, that was 80s twink goals uh, back then. You know? Yeah, no, he looked so cute. He looked like, he, he looked adorable. He would have been the but... only, if only Alexander had run, had run momentum in the, the 80s. The Tatchell thing, though, the Tatchell thing really reminds you of how bad the old Labour right was. Do you know what yes. I mean? Like, yes. it was yeah. like, like Michael people... Foy comes across really badly in that. Yeah, that I mean, session. they all do. Did, did, did you notice as well that the front bench spokesperson um, that wouldn't help out Tatchell was Kinnock? Ah! 
<laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. Kinnock, there, there have been kind of background echoes that Kinnock has been, was at least in the 80s. Uh, not He didn't do this in speeches, but he was someone who was happy to kind of join in with homophobic jokes. But this is the thing. This is the perspective I take now. Like most straight, most straight men, I kind of view you either as laundered homophobes or, uh, or, or still kind of to some degree homophobes. Kieran is one of the few exceptions, uh, obviously, because you've got, you've got gay, you've got, uh, you've got gay family members. And actually short of that exception, those are basically the only straight men I trust. Um, uh, but other than that, I view everyone as like, look, Either you are still to some small degree maybe a bit homophobic now, or you've been homophobic in the past. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that just as long as I don't I mean, have to I, deal with it. As long as I don't have to like, deal with I, it. I don't care if some like but the, these are things that I noticed like when I was writing. I like I was writing down like notes. Like a lot of the notes are I hate this party. Like it's like indistinguishable from like well, those were Chris Starmer's notes for the first month he was trying to write the speech. So. Like, a lot of, like, the notes that I've made from, like, the wilderness years I like are, like, indistinguishable from, like, what I assume, like, must be, like, Thatcherite Scott's notes. You know? <laughs> like, it's just me saying I hate this party. I wish this party had never existed. That's I right, wish Scott's I had never notes, heard of the Labour Kinnick's Party. notes. <laughs> Starmer's notes. Probably Corbyn's notes for a good year at some point. Um, but, uh, like, you know, I think that's the ultimate unity position. Fuck the Labour Party. I hate the Labour Party. Why do I have to be talking about the Labour Party? Everyone's been there at some point. That That's not normally me, but it was me for the last week. So, you know, you're not normal. You're not normal if you don't think fuck the Labour Party at some point, I don't think. Do, do, we, have, do we have any, like, favourite moments from... The documentaries 80s. as a whole. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, don't remember them, obviously. Uh, but the the documentaries as a whole, I think we we alluded because Julia, you were talking about the notes you made about the documentaries. I started to make notes. The only thing I wrote down was uh, Clive Jenkins in the swimming pool because there's a section where I can't, I don't know which news station it necessarily was at the time. It might have been the BBC, but they had him interviewed this trade union leader for whatever union i can't remember they interviewed him in a swimming pool and like like a roman like emperor you know kind of just that's what ben called him yeah, yeah it, it was it was really bizarre and just really funny to think about um i respected the hustle it's exactly the what whole I would... thing though the whole thing is like a different country like um Kinnock and his wife singing um what what, what was Bandera it um, yeah it was avanti popular wasn't it that's what um, they sang yeah. when when they won like if a leader did that now they would be. They'd have to resign the day after. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like there were. You could see actually that it was a different world in terms of there being a labour movement, like a union movement. Uh, that actually there that where this was a big thing. I think. Do they still sing the red flag at conference? I think. They yeah, they, yeah, they sung it. They sung it today. Yeah, but and that's like one of the few things that's like I'm surprised you don't get wankers who bang on about like you know the sorts of people who kind of go oh it's so embarrassing when people in Labour call each other comrades you know this is why you can't go talk to normal people the sorts of people who come out with those you know Luke Cold takes um, the entire time I'm surprised that doesn't come up still. The same I mean way I don't really like the red flag because it's a bit dull. Do you know it's quite like they actually did a bit in the in the wilderness when they said let's sing the red flag. But let's not make it really dreary. Let's sing it in marching time, and then they proceeded to sing it in a really, in a really dreary voice. But actually, that was that was one moment that I was like, where they had everyone, and it almost like I couldn't tell if it was a subtle contrast where they had everyone at conference. I think it was in 1991 singing Queen, "We Are the Champions," and I was just like, "Oh, that was poor, wasn't it?" It's like, yeah. come on, man, <laughs> like, wait, you know, do it after, <laughs> celebrate after. <laughs> yeah, um, obviously the Sheffield, obviously the Sheffield rally was just a massive cringe overall, but obviously also it didn't change anything but i think you know that's one of those things where it's just like look 
if you're going to do these sorts of rallies, don't do them as if you're welcoming a pop act onto stage, uh, you know, unless you've got the glamour of a pop act. You could do that. Blair could have done that. You know, Blair was basically fucking... Blair was basically fucking... Uh, what's his name? Off the Rolling Stones. Someone remind me so I can re-say that sentence. Who's the leader? Mick Jagger. You know, Mick Blair Jagger. was... You know, Jagger kind of swagger to him. But, like, other than that, you know... Near, near, I'm not going to treat fucking a balding ginger man from Wales like he's a rock star, you know? <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> well, Michael, how are you? <laughs> um... <laughs> No, that's what that's what was it Gerald Calvin said about him that I just I got didn't... a message like I just returned and I like I just want to say uh we have like our new message about the EU which was Kieran just sent me and it says rejoin now <laughs> <laughs> no as, as I was saying that's what um Gerald Calvin said about him, which I didn't buy at all it was the bit of you know oh they they looked at Neil Kinnock and they they saw someone like themselves but and not a prime minister but when they looked at John Major, who was working class, they saw a prime minister. It's like, you just contradicted yourself. Yeah. I, there, was a lot, was... there was a lot in it where it was people clearly trying to, especially Kaufman, trying to appear sort of smart and above it all. And like, they never made any kind of mistakes. And, you know, but that is the Labour Party now. It's all, well, I was right. <laughs> you know, people, people looking like they had explanations for everything. So you had Joe Ashton, who was the MP for Bassett Law before Joe Mann, who was, you know, the tribune of the working classes. You know, he's someone who saw himself as the shop steward of the, uh, of the parliamentary party and of, of the Labour right, kind of in a lot of respects, saying, oh, you know, when uh, Neil Kinnock did the, we're all right, you know, that wasn't a prime minister. And it's something that might have been the case. And it's something like, you know, obviously... Ed Miliband eating the bacon sandwich wasn't something that helped his image. But like, it reminds me now sort of when you occasionally see these tweets about, oh, if only Ed Miliband hadn't eaten that bacon sandwich, you know, he'd still, we would, we'd still be in the EU, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, these things are never enough on their own. They always actually conduct, they conduct prior interpretations people have. And actually kind of throughout it all, I was kind of thinking, Neil Kinnock, like the impression that I got from so much, you know, there was, there was one moment where he was looking up to the camera just before, and you know, most people would just say, right, okay, everybody in the shadow cabinet say cheese or something like that. And instead he does this really weird sort of like, I'm fine guy. And he's like sort of this weird kind of comic character. And it's like, the impression I got from it is like, you know, Neil Kinnock's someone who's a bit of a laugh, but, he's, but if I was sort of like someone who, who was a bit of a normie and didn't pay attention to politics much, I just sort of think he was a bit odd. Honestly, actually, he reminded that's... me a bit of Boris. Yeah, and like... that was the other thing that I was thinking. But that's it. the like, thing. But that's so the thing. The Tories get away with being cringe. Yeah. So many of these rules, I was looking at it and thinking like, well, actually, all of these rules have been broken. But one other thing. So I was talking with Kieran the other day and, and you know, one of the theories for why Starmer's kind of really gone to pot over the last six months is someone that has been told probably for a lot of his life that he'd make a good leader of the of the Labour Party and the second that was really hard and it started going wrong that kind of has probably shaken him in a way and it's led him to a point where now he feels he's got to throw a lot of stuff overboard in a way that he didn't really seem like he was doing policy wise well, I think the difference the is he year. didn't have Kinnock had the stuff to begin with Starmer didn't really that's where well, I'd Starmer draw the, the pledges, the 10 pledges yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... I mean it was it was the the Gerald Calpin thing again of saying he's a you know, you could apply it to both of them, a checklist leftist. He would take on whatever was popular of the day and then jettison it. But with Starmer, you know, with Kinnock, it's like he was Michael Foot's protégé. He was in Parliament for a bit. Um, it's more convincing with Starmer. It's like if you bought the like the idea that he was going to stick to these pledges, like did you also think that Jeremy Corbyn was going to reopen the coal mine? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know... <laughs> 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, he was someone who, like, I... I mean, with the 10 pledges, I thought, right, okay, you're probably going to get rid of maybe one. Like, I, I thought freedom of movement was one thing that probably wasn't necessarily going to last. I thought a lot of the It others, wasn't a pledge. Uh, he said he'd fight for it, which is one thing that he's dropped. Yeah, it was, it's such vagaries. Like, yeah, it's, 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 very, it's very vague. But now, like, so yeah. he went from he'd fight for it to it was pretty much the first thing of saying, like, you know, no, I'm not going. So it's it was a clear that he wouldn't even fight for it quite quickly, which is like, right, okay, that's one thing I expect. We'll go. Um, but, like, now it's at the point where, you know, I still think he probably kind of at his heart kind of would want to do a lot of these things. So I think really he's actually just sort of a mushy sort of, you know, he likes things left. You know, he I feel like he is someone with red green instincts, but probably kind of has that sort of internal cringe that a lot of the people at the BBC have of like, right, I'm a lefty liberal, but I'm out of touch. <laughs> um, uh, so kind of feels like he's maybe kind of got to moderate from this. And, you know, he's just done his three his three month self-flagellation tour kind of going all, all the way around the country, listening to everyone saying, uh, Oh, labor are terrible labor. Are the reason everything's terrible in my local area. They've been terrible for the last 10 years. Hang on. They, they haven't been in charge of your council since like, or they haven't, we haven't been in charge for the last 10 years. Oh. And also the problem is, is that young people are lazy. You know, he's been listening to this sort of stuff for three months and actually that coupled with, you know, not being as good a, a leader as I think he probably kind of uh, was set up to expect to be. I could see that that would really affect him and maybe think, right, okay, I've got to go back on a lot of this in a way that it didn't seem like he was doing other than on internal party organisation in that first year. Um, and actually, the main contrast I was kind of thinking of was with actually David Cameron, because David Cameron is someone who literally from his 20s was being told, yeah, you're going to be a prime minister, prime minister one day. And obviously, he's someone who had... Uh, moments where things were going quite badly for him, kind of uh, particularly under Brown. Uh, but I suppose this is one way in which he sort of showed his metal in that it, it didn't shake him. But he was also someone who had most of the support of the papers behind him. So actually, you've got that contrast of Neil Kinnock's a bit of a weird man, but and, you know, occasionally inappropriate. But you've got all of that for Boris Johnson as well. But the key problem, obviously, is that you've got the media kind of before them. They're, they're, as Julia says, they're willing to forgive the Tories. They're willing to support the Tories. They're not willing to do this for Labour. So actually, they're starting from a much harder position and most leaders are starting from a much harder position. So, like, I've been thinking a lot about, like, this this series of, like, documentaries. And I think that, like, in a sort of way, they're, like, sort of very self-fulfilling. You know what I mean? They're very teleological. Because... They're all going to the end point of, like, ah, and here comes the sainted baby Blair who will lead us out of, uh, lead, deliver us from evil, who will lead Labour into... Like, the thing actually feels like it could have been done, re- recorded in 1997. It feels like it has been written and it is expecting the kind of majority that Labour got in 1997. But also, like, it's also, like, there is a sense of, like, self-importance, you know what I mean? Because, like, Tony Benn comes off awfully on, on, in it. I cannot imagine, like, watching that and thinking that Tony Benn comes off, like, well. Like, he comes off awfully. Like, the, 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 like everyone is like, please don't do this. And then he just does it. It's just, like, this, this, this sense of, like... Entitlement. Yeah. No, it's the sense of, like... Well, that's literally what one of them Emotion. Says. This is what I'm saying about the Labour Party. Like, I, I, I'm saying that, like, the next conference speech should be, like, like Theresa May, you know what they call us, the nasty party? It should be... You know what they call us? The cringe party. Like, if we were the cringe party, we'd win elections. No, we're not. No, because we're, we're so cringe. You know what I mean? Like, no, 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 but like, like the standard cringe No, party. no, because the way we're cringe is like, like, I w- it's the way like people talk about the Labour Party. I was watching like Shirley Williams going like, oh, it was like leaving a very difficult marriage. And I was like, 
this is deranged. It's like insane. Like this is just a political party. Like the way that people that made more it's sense at the time. Lies in there. So, for example, like back in the fifties, sixties, seventies, you know, political parties, you know, had a, up to a million members. They were socialized locally. The conservative clubs, the labor clubs, yeah, they were. You went out to. One I think it, it, when people say it now, I agree. It sounds fucking no. Crazy. I, I think I think that like when you look at the wilderness years, it's fundamental, especially comrades of war, which I think it's the strongest one for it. It's fundamentally a personal drama about Dennis Healy and Tony Benn, and it just happens to have to have the Labour Party as a backdrop. And I do think there is something like self fulfilling about these documentaries, where there are where like the Labour Party essentially are personal dramas. It's like a party galvanized by personal dramas. So Blair and Brown, David and Ed, Kieran and Jeremy, like they're all like these very highly personal dramas that like people behave in ways that are like a family like they 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 don't behave in ways like like it's a business you know whereas the tories it's like oh i know that i've just kicked you out old chap but like i'll, I'll put you in the lords you know all good we're we're we're, we're okay I mean, that's part of the currency for these sorts of things. Um, but like the one that, I mean, one of my favorite points is that actually the Labour Party, bench you ain't special. Like actually so many of the problems in the Labour Party that people go on like, oh, you know, you treat it like a family. You're weird. You say like it's such a personal. Actually, this is politics. This is just the case actually with most of uh, politics. And I agree with Kieran that there's much less case for it now than there was in the 80s where, you know, your entire life could be in these things. But actually, if you look at the people who make it to the top, they kind of have to make it their whole lives to kind of get a- get ahead. You know, a lot of them go out canvassing all the time. They spend a lot of time socially with these people. I think that's one of the issues with the party, though, is, is the sense that to, to, to succeed in the Labour Party now, you don't have to be good at speaking or... Uh, even communicating you just have to be good at protecting your place on a committee and getting elected to a bigger committee until you are finally elected to be an mp where you can protect that place you know <laughs> for, for as long as you like to go to julia's point of actually you know these are all highly personal dramas you know it's actually the same in the tories with a lot of ways you know but uh, one thing i, think that I always different. think of is boris johnson uh, apparently has long, long resented the fact that he got a 2-1 at Oxford and that Cameron got a first because he thinks he's more intelligent than, than Cameron and really resents oh that. God, imagine, think... like, having your intelligence underestimated by fucking Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But this is the thing that, like, I think about. It's like, Jesus Christ, if Boris Johnson had just got a first, would we still be in the EU today? Imagine, you know, what... <laughs> imagine just, like, Boris Johnson, like, somebody, like, coming up to me and saying, Boris Johnson thinks you're an idiot. Like, I'll immediately kill myself. Like, immediately. I think with a lot of Labour stuff, it's like, you see it from the 80s and still now, it's like failing to acknowledge that the Labour movement, you know, with some blips, is in decline and continues to be in decline. And there's, the answer to get out of that decline is sort of paradoxical in the sense that to get to get the Labour movement and unions out of that decline, they would need to legislate them out of that decline. But no, we can't get into government. So it's 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 sort of a, a snake eating its own tail endlessly. I think I think that for the most part, the lesson I've tried to draw out from the documentaries, and certainly I think what they were kind of struggling to to kind of deal with, and the tensions at the heart of their, all the various episodes was the fact that you've ultimately got to have a Labour Party that grapples with the world that actually exists, rather than the world they wish existed. 
And that's true insofar as when you're talking about the unions, you know, and we're talking about the kind of like organizing base of workers in this country. Like, Can I just promote um, a piece we have out today yep. uh, by Alex Maguire, which is about the trade union movement struggling to get to grips with um, organizing in former like mining communities that now have like Amazon warehouses in them. It's really interesting. So you should go read it. And part of that is a byproduct of legislation. We talked on the pod previously about like how trade union, the trade union act and previous trade union bills that have been passed through have basically hampered growth in traditional means, but they've also meant that the trade union movement has basically struggled to do online properly as well. And you'd think like, you know, you can vote for a political party, you, like you can cash your ballot online for that, but like you can't in your union. That's really bizarre. And like, you know, it, it, it's it's symptomatic of a wider problem. But I think it's, you know, looking at like the conference today, it's like, and looking at like the events now, it's, I think the decisions being made are one in which people perceive the world to think where what they really need to see is the Labour Party, like one part of the Labour Party kicking the shit out of another part of the Labour Party. And that means that you, you know, you convey strength or whatever. And really like the world as it exists, one, plainly won't pay attention but two, the bits they're seeing that they're paying attention to will just be the Labour Party rowing. And ultimately, like they've drawn from these documentaries in this period of history is that you need to conquer the party to be able to win power in the country. But ultimately, a lot a lot of the time people look at the, the act of conquering and think, actually, I kind of just want a quiet life and I don't really want all the fighting all the time. So I think, you know, at, at some point, you know, everyone's perceptions of reality are going to be different and, you know, but at the end of the day, I think it's like if you're like really deftly concerned about a member of the SGG not getting on the ballot, like I think you probably really misunderstand the Labour membership and also the world, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I that's think, just me. I think one other thing that I kind of uh, sort of there's almost kind of a, a useful sort of note to wrap up on kind of for, for the, the the wilderness years that I kind of, that occurred to me is like right at the end, actually, uh, you can see that this, this documentary has got a real narrative. It really does take a side kind of in some respects uh, in terms of its its tone, um, uh, which isn't too surprising kind of in a lot of respects. But, um, uh, but it, it ends sort of, you know, in 1995, Tony Blair's taken over. It sees it as leading the party into these sunlit uplands. Um, and which you know were plenty sunlit in some respects, not necessarily in some others. But um, uh, but um, uh, it says that you know, oh, the party has rejected almost everything that it stood for, which is actually kind of a rare. I mean, you can see that actually that's really. I mean, that's very much I think what Blair wanted you to believe. But um, one thing that actually always kind of always sticks in my mind is that actually, if you look at the 1983 manifesto and if you look at the 1997 manifesto, there's actually a surprising amount of continuity between them no obviously not a lot in sort of a lot of the headline policies like unilateral disarmament or or you know various ways that the economy changed you know you have nowhere near as much kind of government control over the economy or government kind of uh, planning of the economy in 1997 in the world of the 90s at all as you did in the 80s you know those those state institutions and functions just weren't there anymore um but actually you know a surprising amount of the 83 manifesto made it into the 97 manifesto uh, you know there was a lot of continuity in terms of like for example you know uh social rights um in, in 
work in workers' rights, kind of in some respects. You know, I think uh, uh, the manifesto kind of gave the right to, you know, have trade unions recognised kind of in the workplace, uh, but also on things like LGBT rights, scrapping Section 28, um, uh, devolution. Uh, there, there were a lot of things that actually did kind of get brought through, which is one thing that the documentary would actually probably fool you into thinking that actually none of this had anything to do with what was there before. And actually, it's one thing that kind of applies through now and that actually this, uh, I think a lot of the kind of story, you know, in, in maybe 10 years or when, or in five years, whenever, if a documentary ever happens kind of about all of this period, which the BBC being the BBC, it probably will at some point, um, it will probably kind of make you think that there's maybe been a lot more change than, than there has. And actually, there is kind of some continuity that comes through it. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking of now is that one of the big parts uh, that's come through from this Labour conference is, you know, stuff on workers' rights, you know, stuff like uh, uh, the sta- um, extending the right to statutory sick pay um, kind of for people who are uh, in, in the gig economy and things like that. That actually, there is kind of still a lot of continuity that even at the lowest moments, a lot more stuff kind of makes it through uh to the final eventual winning labor manifestos that and a lot more than you'd think and it's not really the plot that that really tends to come out of these things because it does always kind of make it out that it is this big conflict between left and right that you have these people kind of talking as if the manifesto that's going to come out eventually is going to be this massive rejection betrayal oh it's just going to be the 2015 manifesto again that you know just pledges to only cut tuition fees by a third or all these silly little things um uh, and actually, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily know uh, how much the next manifesto is going to look like the 2017 manifesto, but there probably is going to be a lot of continuity and there is going to be a lot there that does reckon with the world as it is now. Um, so actually, that's kind of one of the quieter things that has kind of come out of this conference that uh, really, you know, there's been a lot of focus on workers' rights and on on um, really dealing with the, the world of work and the nature of the UK as it is now that... Uh, it's quite easy to miss if you look at sort of this wilderness years frame uh, of these things, but actually kind of gives you quite a lot of hope for what there could be from a potential next Labour government. Um, but yeah, that was one sort of takeaway that I took. So for me, I think sort of, as a, to wrap up or whatever, the, the, the ideology at the sort of heart of the documentary, there's, there's some sort of, uh, especially the, the mythologised version of Tony Benn that comes out through the documentary that I think sort of is what most of the modern left is based on. Obviously, it's a very easy, even though Tony Benn comes across very badly in it, it's still very selective. Like he, like Neil Kinnock, went back on every, everything he believed in. He just did it, you know, when Labour went out of power from, you know, the 70s to the 80s rather than Kinnock, who did it the other way around. And there was a bit right at the start where uh, Roy Hattersley said that internal opposition was invented by the Benites. And, um, you know, he, he did this, it was this big, like quite um, dramatic speech where he said, you know, they drew a line here and said, that, you know, policy is never truly socialist and blah, 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 blah. Um, but I th- this is what, to me, what the party feels like now in the sense that there's no substance behind it. It's just bruising factualism for its own sake. So I think the ideology of, of the sort of, of the documentary has borne to be what, engulfs the Labour Party now and I think it is a counterproductive thing where everyone is either seen as a moderniser who the way to modernise is to 
not address the actual problems of today is just to kick the left and the left who, you know, hate the right. And it's just... 15, and, we've got to have a 15 quid minimum wage. And actually, if you promise anything less than a 15 quid minimum wage, oh, you know... You exactly, exactly. It, it's, it's this, it's... It's just untenable for, you know, to, to have an atmosphere like this, because as we've as we've all seen and unfortunately some of us have probably have experienced, it just leads to people believing themselves the only righteous people in the party. And that leads to incredible like bullying to of a scale, which people if, if you showed it to people outside the party, they would be like, what on earth are you doing in this thing? Do you know what, what are I mean? you doing in the same party? You know, if yeah, you can't exactly. get along. How can we trust, you know? No, no, no. I just mean, they would, if you showed it to someone outside the Labour Party, they would say, why are you wasting your time <laughs> with with this, like, snake eating its own tail? Just just one question. Even though I just said that, like, ev- everything about the party was, like, representative of a deeply sick environment, who, are, who was your favourite person on the documentary? Mine was Dennis Healy. Um, I think, the, I don't know about favourite. I think the bitch here... No, you have to say one. One favorite. Uh, Come on. Oh, actually, I think it's Kinnock just because of how sort of un. It was horrible, like a horrible show of of machoness. But when he said, "Oh yeah, I battered this guy in the gents," and it's just like <laughs> this is what the party is now. Like uh, he was leader, and he battered a guy in the gents. Imagine if that he wasn't leader yet. To be fair. Like, no, he was. He was. He was. He was. Imagine yeah. if there was a story that Keir Starmer had battered an activist in the gents and then Geronimo. bragged about it. Geronimo, Geronimo. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Okay, Turin, you, who was um, your favourite person? So my basic rule of politics is I just try not to have heroes. You know, I try because... Actually, no, I, no, no, I no, no, like... no. I didn't say hero. I said, who did you come out, come out <laughs> of it? To clarify, Neil Kinnock is not my hero. Yes. That was just a <laughs> No, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm, I just give it as a preface of, you know, um, there are people, I, I, I feel like... Choose one, no, one, come on. Let me talk, Julia. Jesus. (laughs) This doesn't make good podcasting. Um, I, you know, try not to come out of things like, you know, who's my favorite in this? You know, I try to assess things as they are. Um, Gerald Kaufman is someone who I thought had kind of good analysis kind of for a lot of it. Obviously, there were plenty of times when he was just bullshitting completely and actually giving a reason and actually just trying to look clever as, you know, that this was the reason things happened. But actually, a lot of the time, you know, he had much better analysis than the likes of Joe Ashton, someone who did a lot kind of in that documentary and probably did a lot in real life that got Labour kind of back onto the track where it could do uh, things like the 87, 92 and eventually 97 manifesto. But, you know, came out with so much shit during the whole thing. That I, um, and actually, you know, if I, it was a documentary where I don't think there were people who, there, there may have been heroes in terms of what it eventually led just to. Just say Mandelson, just say Mandelson already, come on. You already said you're a Kaufman. That yeah, everyone you. came up. If you... Can I, like, can I just add to that? Right? Yes, Mandelson. Yes, Mandelson. <laughs> can, I, can I just add to mine? Because I think what I sort of forgot about as well, this was a really... I think Kenick was the best sort of character in it because he really seemed the most human when he would say stuff like, um, I, you know, I agreed with people when they said I was stupid. You know, mm. that, that, that was just re- a really human moment. And when he said like... Um, you know, when when he gave like this two minutes uh, sort of sermon about how he was such a failure, you know, yeah. that is a distinctly Labour Party thing. You, know? across, you wouldn't get that outside best. the Labour Party. 
Uh, Tinnock came across best, I'd say, out of everyone who did the interviews throughout the whole thing. Everyone else came across very clever, clever, very schemey. And that was what I was kind of trying to say, and that I didn't really have any favourites from it because of that. I'll go back. back. My favourite was the trade union leader who made the cameras come in and, like... This swimming pool guy, we've discussed him like... I looked at that and I was like, yes, that is the source that I aim for. I will do that. One day I will have an interview where you have to take my quotes while I'm in a swimming pool with a Roman fucking wreath on my head eating grapes. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Review Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please feel free to share it on the social media platform of your choice. It helps the show out massively. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask us, you can at us on Twitter at SockReviewPod, email us SockReviewPod at gmail.com or leave a response to the Google form that you can find on our Twitter. Our music is The Dance by Kyle Cox, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening and have a fantastic rest of the day.